Welcome to Living Word Bible Church, a lovely place for families where we have a passion to sing great songs to Jesus and where sound Bible teaching is central in home groups and in preaching at Sunday services. Living Word Bible Church, teaching the Bible verse by verse. Amen. Hey. Let me take you, we won't have a Bible reading as such because I'm going to read through the Bible with you together. Um, we're going to start in John 20, the resurrection passage, as a prelude to what's coming on Sunday. And then we're going to work mostly through Matthew's Gospel, but looking at some other parts and just looking at the events of this evening. So uh, John 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. That, those are eyewitness accounts. And so here's what we're reading when we read John's word. I know it's really pretty, and I haven't got a Bible here, apart from the digital one, but we got it bound beautifully, you know, in glossy text, you know, so nicely written out in good type font. And we can forget that we're dealing with real literature, ancient literature, literature that has been verified by historians as having some authenticity. At some time in the near future, I'll do a small series on the authenticity of the scripture. But for now, at least, we're dealing with a document. And it's, in fact, in John's Gospel, it's the oldest piece of manuscript or parchment that's ever been found. They reckon they have a piece of John, John's Gospel, from as early as 120 to 150 AD within the lifetime of the companions of the Apostle John. That close. And there's some words of Jesus there in that gospel, in that account. Here's what John pens for us. Early on the first day of the week, Sunday, today, just speaking to Matt earlier and saying the reason Christians worship not on Saturday, but on Sunday, is not by accident or ignorance, it's by a definite, willful choice based on a, a pattern that Jesus himself began or inaugurated. The very first day that he revealed himself to his disciples was on the Lord's day. And so it's not by chance that the early church then began to meet together to worship their Lord on the first day. Can you see what Sunday became, the resurrection day? It became a weekly Easter celebration. That's why we worship today. And it's why we don't worship on Saturday. Because there's no biblical mandate for us to do so. But the biblical precedence is for us to gather for worship on Sundays, on the first day. Because it was the day that Jesus finally revealed himself, came back from the dead. And at this juncture, then when Mary sees this empty stone, sees it's an empty tomb, or well, at least a stone rolled away from its entrance. It's the beginning, and we're going to look at this on Sunday, of the evidence, the proof of Jesus' resurrection. And that is where Christianity started. Christianity didn't start on Good Friday. That was the end of Christianity, the end of this new sect, seemingly. It was the end of this, this movement around this man, Jesus, because for any movement almost as a universal standard, when you stamp out its key leaders, and particularly its chief leader, you must almost always 
extinguish the movement. And so Christianity, or the beginnings of it, was effectively extinguished on that Friday. And we'll see shortly, everyone abandoned Jesus. He was the end of this sect. Except for these verses, these eyewitness accounts that early on the first day of the week, where Jesus was buried, the stone, which was both sealed and guarded, and look, it wasn't as though just two guys were sitting there drinking Coca-Cola. These would have been armed guards. Armed, and this wasn't a stone that you just opened up with a key. It was a heavy-duty thing. We're confronted with the obvious. Something incredible, superhuman has occurred, and we'll look at Sunday what that is. But for now, the beginning of Christianity begins on the very first Easter, the first day of the week, Sunday and it transforms the world. I mean, look at us. I know we're only a few people on this good Friday morning, but for you know, legitimate reasons, most of our congregation can't be here today. But we're just one tiny example. We, can go, we, can go, we don't have to go very far down the road to see gatherings of thousands of people under the same banner. We don't have to travel very far across Australia to see hundreds or thousands of gatherings. We don't have to travel very far beyond Australia to see, to understand that right across this world that there are at this very moment millions, possibly billions of people gathering under the name of Jesus to celebrate his death today and his resurrection on Sunday. Christianity, because of that empty tomb, has become a global phenomenon. This sect that had been stamped out on Friday was reborn on Sunday. And it has revolutionised the, the thinking of the entire globe, in every area of the globe, not just merely in the area of faith. But let's come back to Friday. And I want to show you Something of what that looked like, what that felt like, some of the mystery. We're going to begin in Luke. Here's Luke 22, verses 10 to 12. All the verses should come up for you. <coughs> so don't worry about trying to find them in your Bible. I promise you they are legitimate quotations of your Bible. If you looked in it, they'd be identical. I promise you. And almost always, unless I tell you, and here's a cheap trick, preachers can do to abuse what the Bible says is that we can jump through multiple different translations trying to find the translations that tells you what I want to tell you. Okay, so we don't do that here. We almost always quote one standard recognised translation of the Bible, the New International Version is worldwide, used worldwide. So all the texts will be from the NIV version of the Bible. You can find that there. there. And, I, and if, I ever trans, if I ever quote a different translation, I'll tell you and I'll explain why I've resorted to a different translation. It's not to find something that says what I wanted to say, but it's because sometimes other translations do do a better job of a particular verse. So all of the NIV trans verses there of what I quote will be there. So here's Luke 22. Jesus says this to his disciples <coughs> on Passover preparation day. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar will... A jar of water will meet you. 
from, follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. It began ordinarily enough, but now <coughs> it's the first sign of something different. And the disciples weren't used to different. Jesus regularly did different. It's what made him unique. Hanging out with Jesus was like no other prophet of the time because he regularly did things that are different. And here's one such one. The disciples had to follow a set of instructions and it seems that Jesus has already set up certain structures that will occur exactly the way he suggested. They follow it out. And again, this wouldn't have been too, too unusual, we shouldn't think. But here's where he does begin to get serious. The night begins, Jesus is gathered with his disciples, and now he does what he always does. And, and we have to understand that Jesus did a lot of this. He kept talking about an enigmatic scenario of his own death. But he obviously wasn't talking about death, because he's, a, he's the, there, the, T-H-E-I-R, he's the Messiah. They understood that. They discovered that. Peter confesses it. You're the, the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They knew who he was. They'd been convinced by who he was. They saw him in action. They witnessed how many times he supernaturally evaded the authorities. They witnessed how he was able to avoid arrest. And so Jesus is again talking about his death. He's not talking about death as they understood it. He can't be talking about death as they understood it. And so this would have been another one of those, here he goes again, John. Why does he keep going on about this death? And so here he goes on again about, about his death. But before he be, even before he begins there, he tells them this incredible thing, and it's the first time that he said this, as far as we're aware, Matthew 26, 21. While they were eating, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Wow. I mean, that must be the heaviest thing that Jesus has said to date. One of you will betray me. I mean, obviously, they're all passionate about Jesus, clearly passionate about him. And here's Jesus accusing them of about to, to turn on him, as it, as it were. I guess, they, what, were they, what do you think their initial response may have been to this, one of you will betray me? Remember, Jesus is always speaking in riddles. What would you imagine the first response would be? It would be either to shock, but maybe not even shock, maybe... Pardon? Denial, Denial certainly, but maybe just another one of those... <laughs> yeah, you know... Because he just speaks in riddles all the time. He regularly did it. And so, uh, possibly some shock. Possibly. Possibly, but just something again that goes over their heads. And then as he begins to talk about Matthew 26, 26 to 28, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and gave it to his disciples. And up to now, there's nothing unusual. It was typical in that you would give thanks for your meal. But then he says these words, and he would have hearkened back to something he'd said previously, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the new, or of the covenant. 
And again, that heard him say that. He said that at least on one occasion in John, John 6, something similar, when he talked about the only way that you could have anything to do and receive what God was giving us through Jesus was to consume his flesh and to drink his blood. He said something like this. Now that the disciples would have, would have recollected that, they recollected a lot. Let me just throw one out here. Have you ever wondered why, how the disciples were able to write about Jesus tens of years after the event, how they recollected so much? Have you ever wondered that? I do. And it is that said. Here's the thing. Okay, if you ask me what I had for dinner 17 Sunday hours ago, well, dinner might be easier, lunch. I wouldn't have, have a clue. But if you ask me about my conversion, and that was 30, how old am I? 48 and 16, what's that make it? 48 and 16, 16? 32. 32, yeah, 32. What did I say 16 for? I'm losing my marbles. Okay, 30, over 30 years ago, I can tell you in clinical detail I can tell you the moment, what it felt like, what the area looked like, how it happened, the words I was asked to say, the words I said, my response, my feelings. I can give you in graphic detail. What does that tell you about certain events in people's lives? That the key events in your life, you will remember with precision till the day you die. It's what the disciples got right so factually, with such details, one of the reasons. There's, there's, there's more to it than that, but one of the reasons. And so look, they would have remembered exactly what Jesus said in that sermon. And here's Jesus repeating these words as, his, as he were. But this time, going a stage further, there he was giving out just a, just a call to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which nobody had any idea of. Now Jesus is going through a ceremony, as he were, a rite, and he must now seem grotesque if he didn't before. Because he's now taking a piece of bread and saying, this is my body. He's now taking drink and saying, this is, my, this is my blood. So Jesus has now taken this metaphor way deeper than the disciples ever have experienced. Again, this is no ordinary, ordinary night. But listen to his word. And, and I'm, not, I'm not convinced the disciples will fully gather the weight of this these particular words, this is my blood of the covenant. Here's why I'm not sure the, of the disciples would have taken much notice of that. Every Jew in that, in, in that scene would have been familiar with the Bible. Because what did you do as a youngster if you were a good Jewish, from a good Jewish family and everybody was from a good Jewish family? What did, what did your kids do? They went to the synagogue and it was drummed into them, Graham drummed into them from infancy. They knew the scriptures well. Some of them knew it off by heart entirely. Okay, so regardless of the fact that they're fishermen, or whatever their trade, they knew the scriptures. Every Jew knew the scriptures. And you know what it's like? You can still quote things you were learnt in Sunday school 50 years ago, can't you? I assume. Yeah, probably. Okay. <laughs> they knew the scriptures. But this isn't a particularly well well-versed scripture. And so, so it may not have been obvious. Here's, here's what Jesus is referring to. It's Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel. They may not have known that verse, but here's the verse. There's the verse. Here's what Jesus is harking on about, and it's very, very important. It's the most significant thing about this meal is that this is the blood of the new covenant. There's a covenant in place. There's multiple covenants in place. The very first covenant is the covenant that God made with, with Adam in the garden, that uh, with Noah, uh, uh, about there had never been rain. Sorry, there is one in the garden, and I can't think of it, but at least I can think of the second covenant, the one that he made with creation in Noah's day, that he promised his covenant was that so long as there's seed, the earth continues, there'd be seed time and harvest and that he would never destroy the earth again. There are multiple covenants, but the one that Jesus is particularly talking about that will make a new covenant is replacing, which covenant is replacing the covenant of, begins with L, the covenant of law. And here's God's point. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Let me ask you, when do you get something new? What generally precipitates the purchase of something new. Yes, thank you. Something no longer serves the purpose for which you acquired it. I know that's not the case in the modern day world. We just get something new just because we fancy the new thing, don't we? Because it's the perverse world we live in. We've got, we've got way too much access to too much, too many things, haven't we? But here's a, here's, a, here's a society where where the only time you got something new, I grew up in that society from the age of one to five, Bangladesh. Do you know, the only time, typically, it was a bit different in my family because I had Western, from my, my dad was living in the West. So it was slightly different. But generally, the only time you got a new shirt was when? Or a new longi? Was on Eid, on, on your special religious days. The only time you got something new, Okay. And you'd only get a new thing because your last thing, by a year on, had holes in it. And I know, I know that's trendy now, Sylvia, but it wasn't, it's not trendy there. Okay? So, so for something new, it's speaking automatically about the thing it's replacing. It's automatic. The very fact that God wants to introduce a new covenant tells us straight away something about the old covenant. What's it telling us about the old covenant? It's not, function, it's not performing the function for which God intended to... And we did this last week on the video because his function for the Old Covenant was what? Do you remember last week? It was a long time ago. Uh, his function, and this is why he's replacing it, his function for the Old Covenant was to do what? Yes, it wasn't to make you good. It was not to make you good. That was a perverse misunderstanding of the Old Covenant. If you believed it could make you good, the purpose of the Old Covenant was to make you believe that you were bad. But he wasn't doing that. All he produced was Pharisees and Pharisaicalism. And so here's what God says. I will establish a new covenant. The first covenant, here's a strong word, fails. Fails by design. God knew, obviously, of his failure. He fails because rather than bringing people en masse to repentance, he's bringing people en masse to a self-belief 
in one's own righteousness. Remember what the rich young ruler said to Jesus? What did he say to him? When, when, when Jesus reeled off the commandments, what did he say? And he typifies every Israel, every Jew. What did he say? I've kept them all. He wasn't unique, Graham, in that understanding. He was just saying what every Jewish son believed. And so God is saying, no, you haven't. And you can't see it. But you failed the covenant over and over again. Every attempt you made to keep the covenant, you failed the covenant. And so God is establishing a new covenant. This is called the unilateral covenant. Unilateral covenant as opposed to a bilateral covenant. The first covenant was bilateral, which meant it required two parties to, to perform their duties, otherwise it could be broken. This one's a unilateral covenant. So that by definition, that sounds like a covenant which requires only the obedience of one party. Which party? God or the human? God. Yeah, one or the other. 50-50. That was a 50-50 one. Because the issue with the first one was that humans would always fail the stipulations of the covenant. So God says, I'm going to establish a new covenant. And this one, and here's the wonderful thing about the new covenant, no matter how many times you fail in that covenant, because it's a unilateral covenant based entirely on me, you cannot, Graham, and this is not a license for sin, it's a license for not sinning. Okay, read this correctly. This isn't a license to sin. That just proves you're a sinner and you need forgiveness, you need saving, says Paul in Romans 6. This isn't a license to sin. This is a license not to sin. Then no matter how many times you sin, you can never sin your way out of this covenant. So what's the wonderful thing about the new covenant? You cannot sin your way out of it. There is no sin that can sin its way out of this covenant because it's a unilateral covenant. Yes, it's established entirely by God. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, says God. And so here's Jesus now on the night of the Passover. He takes bread and he takes wine and a covenant needed cutting and he's always cut by blood. And he says, this is the blood of that covenant that your prophet Jeremiah announced this is the blood of the covenant poured out for the sins of many. And so Jesus is about to inaugurate a system of knowing him. And so he continues. He picks up where he left off before and he now is specific about the betrayal. And here's what, <coughs> here's what Peter responds when Jesus brings the matter up. Matthew 26, verse 33, Peter responds, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never, I never will. And he's been truthful, isn't he? Well, he's been truthful in the sense that he knows his commitment to Jesus and Peter knows that he would never deny Jesus. But here's the thing, every one of us here knows we'll never deny Jesus. We know we won't. But here's the, here's the reality that Peter faced. Peter had not envisaged a set of circumstances that would be perfect for his denial. That's the issue here. And this is how we fall into sin. Okay? We can never imagine committing that sin because we never imagine that the perfect set of circumstances will ever present themselves to us. 
of the Peter, the perfect set of circumstances, set themselves before him and he did the unthinkable. And so in some sense, what I'm suggesting is there has to be some sympathy for Peter. Under normal circumstances, he would never have denied Jesus. Never. But given the right set of circumstances, here's what somebody said, and it's true. Given the right set of circumstances, young lady, you could be an Adolf Hitler. If all the circumstances of your life from birth to now were set up perfectly, even you could end up committing the atrocities of a Hitler. Do we understand that? It's why it's absolutely true, that, that old proverb, but, uh, that's not even how, how, how is it? What's, what's this, it's the one, uh, but for the grace of God. That's the one, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. But for the grace of God. Do you understand that? Do you get that? Next time we look at somebody's sin, don't you dare stand there and say, I would never do that. You could commit the most awful things against God, given the perfect set of circumstances. What happens to Peter? It's the only reason he betrays Jesus. He gets caught out. Matthew 26, 36 to 39. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit Sit here while I go over there and pray. So that they move on from the dinner. They've gone through something which has been puzzling, but look, no doubt, they just put it to the back of their mind. They're now to their... This is a regular spot. Jesus had his little hideouts, places where they hung out. This is where they normally camp out. And they go in there for sleep. It's obviously getting quite late, but Jesus doesn't let them sleep. Sit here while I go over there and pray. And more so, he does something even more they weren't expecting. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. What does this tell them straight away? The very fact that he's taken the three inner core members, what does this tell them about this night and about this event and about this bedtime? That it's not ordinary. Because this is bedtime. And it's, it may be okay for Jesus to go off by himself because what did he regularly do of an evening? By himself to pray but he wants Matthew and uh, not Matthew Peter James and John something is amiss something is amiss I always used to think and I do think I wonder how they how they cope with jealousy the other nine you imagine how awful you know there they go again getting the inside info on Jesus okay but th there's something bizarre going on because he wants to take these three so this is unusual and then he began to be here to, to these to to, to do to <laughs> to just these three he begins, he begins to open up his heart and he began to be sorrowful and troubled here's the thing about God he didn't make every he doesn't make us all privy to everything he's doing he never did that with the disciples half of them never had a clue what was going on some of them, the three of them knew exactly what was going on almost always something about how God handles information he doesn't tell every one of us everything. But he chooses to tell some people more than others. It's just how it is. He may tell you something of your life, some very precise details of your life. But he's not going to tell him anything about him, himself. Seriously. He may give you 
very precise details about events that will unfold in your life, but he won't do that for him. And God works like that. And he works like that because he's God. He's sovereign. Just because he's told him something about his life, he doesn't mean he has to tell you. And just because he's going to reveal this to these three, doesn't mean he has to reveal it to the other nine. And so God works like that. He takes these three and by choice he reveals something to them that he doesn't reveal to others, at least at this juncture. Then he said to them, and this is when he pours out his heart to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. First, first of all, you notice Jesus doesn't open himself up to the, to the other nine. And again, God chooses how he relates to the individual. He opens himself up to these. And he's showing them something they've never seen before. They have never seen Jesus flummoxed, flustered. They've never seen him emotional in this sense. They've never seen him stirred this way. They've never seen him react to anything in this way. Whenever Jesus, remember when he's on the boat, when everybody else is panicking, What's Jesus doing? Sleeping. Because he was tired? No. He was sleeping. He may have been tired, but it's not the real reason he was sleeping. He was demonstrating what? What was he demonstrating? Yes, absolute trust in God and his purpose. He was demonstrating to the disciples what they should be doing. They shouldn't have been panicking for their lives. They should have been sleeping. They should have been saying, here's Jesus. Have a kip, guys. Don't worry about the water. Do you th really think anything can happen to us with Jesus in the boat? And so he's demonstrating by example. Here, so whenever Jesus was in a situation when, ex when you'd expect him to panic, he never did. But here he is, not so much panicking, but certainly showing a vulnerability he'd never shown before. Going a little further, he fell, verse 39, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, take this cup from me, yet not as I will but yours be done. Look, I've got to be very quick because my time is gone. Goodness sake, I'm sorry. But quick here, what was it about the cross that he was about to face that he was so trying to evade? What was it about it? What was pushing him to sweat drops of blood? What was pushing him to be in agony at the very thought of it? What moved God to contradict God? Can you see what he's doing? He's contradicting himself. By, by asking for his own purposes to be turned. Why? What is it about the cross? What is it about this event? Please answer. That Jesus is so transformed in his reaction to his own will. Yes. What type of suffering and what type of death? Yeah. Thank you. That's what, that's what it is. Really, we've got to get it through our head. He didn't care about nails. Do you really think? I can give you a million examples of men who've had nails, well, not now, but been killed, who've gone, gone at it valiantly. He's not worried about the nails, is he? What's he going to become? What is Jesus going to become on the cross? He's going to become? Yes. He's going to become all the vileness that you and I possess even down to the worst of us. He's going to possess it. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He's going to become the very epitome of sin. We don't know in exactly what sense, but it's possible Jesus would first, for the first time in his existence, could see sin, not from this angle, from the God angle, 
but see your experience sin from. Okay? Which means that that would make him what to God? An offence. And that's a mild word, Greg. It would make him an absolute abhorrent evil to us. Oh, excuse me, I shouldn't have done that. An absolute evil to God. Do you get what he's shunning here? He is about to become the arch enemy of his father. He is about to become the most despicable, evil, fallen creature since all of eternity. He's about to become the most vile thing imaginable to his father. Jesus is about to enter something that will make the father hate the sight of him. So much so that the cross severs dismantles, breaks apart the Trinity of God. It's what he does. It's, it's what is the most unique thing that's ever occurred. It severs the Trinity, something that is unseverable. It's why God said those words. Remember the words? Now Jesus quotes them back to him, Psalm 22. What does Jesus say that demonstrates this severing that Jesus has just felt and experienced? What does he say on the cross? My, my God, my God. <coughs> Why? Have you ever wondered about the gravity of those words? How can God forsake God? They exist in Trinity. They're always in the same place at the same time. Always. They inhabit the same place. You cannot separate God because they are omnipresent. But what has the cross done? The cross has separated an omnipresent God. and made Jesus the most violent, despicable creature on the planet, and has made God hate his son. That's why Jesus is sweating drops of blood at the thought of becoming evil personified, a sinner in the hands of an angry God. That's what happened on the cross. And eventually Jesus, I haven't got time to finish this, I'm going to stop there. And eventually Jesus submits as God to God's will, faces the cross. And on that cross, through the severing of the Trinity, through becoming sin for us, took the just punishment for the sins of the world and satisfied the wrath of God. And this is why it's an evil perversion for us to even to think for a minute that my sin could now separate me from God. Can you see what an evil thing it is to even assume that your sin for which Jesus took the full brunt and weight and satisfied, propitiated the wrath of God, your sin, for you to ever imagine that your sin could ever do that to you, is to spit at the cross. It's to make a mockery of the cross. Nothing, says Paul, neither life nor death, neither things present nor future, or something like that, can separate you from the love of God. Because Jesus experienced the separation 
on your behalf forever. That's why Good Friday is, is Good Friday. That your sins for all time are propitiated. Go. When you leave here, go with that confidence. Jump for joy with that confidence. And it's that. Rather than lead to sin, is the thankfulness and the gratitude of that and what it cost Jesus that is the impetus to want to please Jesus in how we live. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.